Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, December the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray from our political staff, as well as features writer and opinion columnist Jennifer O'Connell. You're all very welcome. Morning, Hugh. Morning. Top of the morning to you, Hugh. And to you too, Pat. As the country is now emerging from Storm Barra uh, and it's preparing itself for whatever kind of constrained Christmas lies ahead, we wanted to discuss some of the political fallout from the decisions which have been taken over the last week or so to introduce new COVID restrictions on international travel, on masking, on primary schools, on hospitality and the entertainment industries, as well as what might happen over the next few days. But first, when it comes to Storm Barra, the 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 words of the day and abundance of caution, Jenny, uh, have been applied to the closing of schools. And I think you, like many parents, are slightly wondering why your children are at home today. Yeah, I, as I was just saying there before we came on air, I'm so relieved that they're all safe at home today on this beautiful sunny morning where there's barely a blade of grass out of place in the garden. And at least I don't have to put their sunscreen on as they go out to school this morning. Um, in fairness, I suppose um, they didn't know what was going to happen overnight. And I'm in the southeast of the country in, in Waterford. So we did know from earlier on in the day that the schools were going to be closed again today. And the idea was that it would give principals time to go in and assess the damage. The news about Dublin schools, I think, came very late last night. I think most of the kids would have woken up this morning to discover that they weren't going to school today. But yeah, I think the frustration about it, I think, probably taps into a more generalised frustration among parents about communications and among non-parents too. I think we're all a little bit frustrated at the moment um, with not knowing what's happening from, from one day to the next but yeah, if this is going to be a pattern uh, going forward with climate change, I think a lot of us feel that it would perhaps be nice to get some online schooling in place so that when the kids are at home, they're not just slumped in front of Netflix for hours on end. Yeah, Pat, school closures um, have a different kind of resonance at the moment than they would have in normal times because of the experiences all families have been through over the last couple of years or so. But there is a kind of a broader argument, isn't there? There is a there is an argument in relation to COVID restrictions, which some of which we'll be talking about in a moment. But just general and anti-nanny state argument that that you know that the state is too quick to shut things down. It's got a taste for it now, and it does it perhaps a bit too easily. I think um, it's beyond question. Looking out the window, I know um, in some parts of the country, you know, the weather was completely atrocious. And obviously, if your national school is situated at the top of the cliffs of Moher or on Shirkin Island, it would have uh, been foolhardy in the extreme to go to school, whether the schools were shut or not. But I speak to you from, unfortunately, not from Waterford like, uh, uh, like Jenny. I speak to you from South Dublin, where yesterday was a little blustery and today is positively balmy. And it is self-evidently the case that there was, in hindsight, no need to close the schools yesterday, which is why parents' WhatsApp groups went what one tweeter called the full jihad at about 10 o'clock last night when word came through that despite the fact that the Met Office advice was that it was going to be status red or whatever they call it between the hours of one and seven this morning 
two hours before most schools open that the schools would have to be closed uh the, the schools would have to be closed, presumably because we couldn't risk the inconvenience to the children of having to step over some fallen branches on their way uh, to school this morning. So as you can tell, I'm not best pleased with the decision of uh, of the government, but trying to get beyond uh, my own resentment at the inconvenience caused to me. I think the meaning that a lot of people took out of last night, and this is necessarily anecdotal at this stage, but I think, you know, the ease with which the schools were closed and the lack of an obvious threat that was in in advance of the closing of those schools is that government assurances that the last thing they would ever dream of doing again would be closing the schools as part of COVID restrictions. I think those assurances begin to look a little hollow this morning. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think the government is certainly committed to keeping the schools open before and after Christmas until such time as it is not. And then, uh, you know, if advised to do so, by officials, it seems to me that the government uh, will not have the political bottle to uh, to go against that advice and keep the schools open. So, you know, not to sound too gloomy about it, but I suspect if the epidemiological situation deteriorates significantly over Christmas, then the potential for closing the schools will loom uh, very high. Politically, it's my view, and again, trying to trying to disassociate my own feelings uh, on the matter from it, but it's my view that that would be a political calamity because it would lose the government that chunk of Middle Ireland um, that has kids in school and believes that those kids were damaged profoundly by the long layoffs, the unnecessarily long layoffs from school in recent years. And I think they would form a view about the government uh, that would be hard for the coalition to come back from. Let's get the non-parental perspective, Jen, in terms of that, because I think uh, myself and, and, and Pat and Jenny all have skin in that particular game. But it is true, an awful lot of political um, capital uh, relies on the schools remaining open, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. And actually, after the announcement went uh, out last night around half nine, I popped onto Twitter just to have a look and see. And it was just despair from parents. And my heart goes out to you guys because I don't know how you deal with it, honestly, especially that late at night. I say the kids woke up this morning and were like, brilliant. And the parents were just staring into the abyss like, when will this ever end? Um, but yeah, no, I, I do agree. Like there's a lot of a lot of political capital resting on this. I think the big problem really is that in terms of the, you know, the next steps and the winter and January, because we know what happened before in terms of school closures, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't need to go over that. But the, they don't know essentially what's going to happen because of the Omicron variant. And they're waiting to see what the results of different tests around the world in different countries show in terms of both its transmissibility, uh, the severity of illness, but most importantly, what effect it has on vaccines is when they talk about vaccine escape. That's what they're talking about. And, you know, I've been talking to a couple of people in government over the last couple of days, um, just asking them, you know, what what's the view on the Omicron variant? What information are they getting in at the moment? You know, what's the latest thinking? And as of this week, they basically don't have any new information and they think they're going to be waiting up until Christmas to get kind of a, um, a glimmer of, of, of what the facts are. And I think the fear in government is that because they've put the brakes on now, now it's obviously not fully blown restrictions, but we know that um, from basically late October, early 
November onwards, um, those restrictions started ramping up. So we know that, you know, first we had the work from home order and then we had increased use of masks, increased use of antigen tests. And then the Taoiseach said at the time, if the situation doesn't improve, we're looking at more restrictions. And now we are aware as of last week, um, you know, as of yesterday, actually, the nightclubs closed and we have, you know, uh, strict social distancing um, and a number of other measures. So I think, you know, the trajectory of it is completely uncertain. And because the thinking in government is because we put those brakes on and because we're kind of tamping down a little bit, that the potential for Omicron to spread is a little bit less. So the the benefit of that is having more time to prepare for it. The downside of it is not knowing fully how it would spread or or the exact information about the transmissibility. So that's the fear. And and what I've been told is that the worry is not necessary. Of course, they're concerned about Christmas. I mean, look what happened last year. The worry is about what happens after Christmas and whether we're going to see this massive wave in the spring and then that leads to closures of schools and we're facing into another year. And someone in government said to me yesterday that, um, you know, they hope to be able to save the summer. It's just kind of extraordinary hearing people talking about hopefully we can, you know, get back to some kind of normal life next summer, summer 2022. Um, so that's kind of the thinking of government at the moment. Big question marks uh, and, and a lot of fear about what could happen. And equally, it, it might not be as bad as we think. And we just have to wait and see. Well, indeed. And Pat, we've talked previously on this podcast how one of the major challenges facing political establishments around the world, not just in Ireland, is dealing with uncertainty because political establishments don't really hate anything more than they hate uncertainty. But that uncertainty is baked into this reality and we're going to wait, as uh, as Jen says, for weeks to get more information. Although I gather there is there is an expectation that we might have a, a clearer picture of what's been happening in South Africa and with the, uh, with the variant itself within the next week to 10 days that will at least take us some way towards some, some information and, you know, that could be good or it could be bad. But is the regime that we're in now the restrictions which were introduced at the end of last week, are they purely because of Omicron? Because, I mean, among other people, the Tonishta himself pointed out that his own government's policy might seem a bit peculiar to people looking at it from outside otherwise. They're not only because of Omicron, but uh, they're also because of the fourth wave that we were, don't forget, experiencing before we ever heard of uh, Omicron, not least figured out how to say it. Um, restrictions were introduced back three weeks ago in the middle of November. Now, they were they were pretty light, but they were in response to what people might recall were all, you know, these dire warnings from, uh, from the health services, from the HSE and the Department of Health about the possibility of hospitals being overrun and uh, hospitals running out of ICU capacity. And that goes back to the early part of November. We saw this big surge in cases in, in uh, late October, November. So we're getting, you know, you know, you moved up from a few hundred, a thousand cases a day, suddenly up to, you know, four or five thousand cases a day, the sort of levels that they've stabilised at now. And that's what brought about the first set of restrictions, which were in the middle of November. Now, they were very light, you know, but they were closing hospitality at uh, at midnight, working from home, accelerating the booster programme and wider use of 
uh, of antigens. So unless you were working in uh, or attending at uh, hospitality late at night, they didn't really uh, affect you apart from the uh, from the working at home, which I think a lot of people are doing on a, a sort of a hybrid basis for now anyway. But it was a very significant move for the government to have to go back because if you recall, the justification always for our very slow and very cautious move out of the restrictions which were imposed at the beginning of this year and ran throughout in 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 some cases until the end of the summer it wasn't until uh, it wasn't until into october that all the restrictions were um uh, were were lifted and then all of a sudden a couple of weeks later we were back into further restrictions but this those restrictions the original restrictions were lifted slowly because the government as it repeated ad nauseum said we don't want to go back that once we lift these restrictions. The reason we're doing it slowly is that um, uh, once we lift them, we will not reimpose them. And lo, only a couple of weeks afterwards, they were having to uh, they were having uh, to to reintroduce restrictions. They were followed then by more stringent restrictions. Uh, the first of them, and this was the source of you know some of the government annoyance with NEFED that we uh, might come on to talk about. Uh, I guess was when NEFED two weeks ago, despite Tony Houlihan having briefed opposition leaders on the Wednesday that he wasn't uh, considering in recommending any further restrictions that week. At a meeting of NEFED the following day, uh, the group agreed to recommend the wearing of masks for, uh, for 9 to 13-year-olds uh, in school. And that was, uh, you know, that, that recommendation was leaked or publicised or whatever you want to call it a couple of days, four days before the cabinet could come around to uh, to formally give it its approval, which it did early last week. And then we saw last Friday again, there was, after another meeting of NEFED, there was a further tightening of restrictions. So really the restrictions have come in three waves, all of which is a rather long-winded way of answering your original question is that, is this just because of Omicron? The early restrictions you were but the latter restrictions, particularly um, uh, last week's ones, uh, were more due to the threat from uh, from Omicron. Yeah, um, and we'll we'll come in a little while to this, this question of who's going to speak in future for the government and, and and on health strategy and the various conflicts that emerged last week. But Jenny, I wanted to ask you because you have, on occasion over the last few months, been critical of elements of what Neffet had to say and the policy articulated by Tony Holohan and by and by members of Neffet on quest, on issues like antigen tests, for example, and other ones as well. And there is, I mean, I've been reading your columns over the last few weeks. I think you were critical of, I think it was Philip Nolan, um, for saying that, that nobody had ever said that schools were safe and that... Uh, that was not actually what was being said a few months ago. Just generally a sense of dissatisfaction with the messaging and perhaps to some extent of the policy of some of the senior medical and scientific officials in the country. That was Ronan Glenn, I think, who said that he had never said that schools uh, were safe, when in fact, just a week previously, having assured us that schools were in fact safe. And, you know, I think it, it feeds into... Um, a growing frustration that I sense among the public and, and you know, among, among parents and among individuals that there just seems to be a lack of trust uh, is one of the defining features of the communications that are coming our way. And even this week, you know, there's a lot of, of talk about is this uh, shutdown over the the yellow uh, weather warning actually a, a sort of a mini circuit breaker that's designed to interrupt COVID in, in the run up to Christmas. Um, and if that's the case, why are we not being told? I mean, it's potentially that's a, a perhaps a little bit of a conspiracy theorist suggestion. 
But I think, you know, the fact that people are even thinking like that shows that they know um, that the communications from government and EFIC currently are suggesting that we're just we're not we're not trusted. We weren't trusted last week with a discussion on the science of masking young children just in the same way that in the spring of 2020, we weren't trusted to wear masks ourselves in case, as Tony Holland said, we decided to treat it like a hurling helmet and put ourselves in harm's way because we were wearing, wearing a mask. Every time restrictions have going to be eased, we've been we've been told that we're not to engage in anticipatory behaviour. Um, up until a couple of weeks ago, we were regarded as, I think, frankly, too thick to follow the instructions on an antigen test. And now a lot of the commentary seems to be kind of blaming parents for the rising cases among five to 12 year olds with all these endless references to sleepovers and, and communions and play dates. And I think, you know, and I wrote in my column last week that that if parents feel they're being gaslit about schools, then then they're right. And, you know, there was a lot of commentary about the use of the word gaslit. But I, I think it's accurate in the context of how uh, the communication around schools has unfolded. Primary schools were still the main driver of, of, of new cases last week, I think. Or it, certainly, you know, the cases among primary school children went up to 2,379 cases per 100,000. Um, and to suggest that that's not happening in schools and that transmission is happening purely outside of schools, I think it just it just doesn't wash anymore. It's completely nonsensical. In my own child's school, I have a, a child in second class who thankfully is not wearing a mask to, to school, but that could come. Um, in her own school, the class underneath her has had eight cases of COVID in the space of about three days out of around 25 kids. So, you know, I think parents can can look at that. They can look at what, what's happening in, in their own lives and in the WhatsApp groups that they're, they're part of, and they can draw their own conclusions about what's happening in schools. So, you know, I think that that's, that's probably feeding into a lot of the frustration that people are, are feeling about the government and about, about NEFIT and about communications at the moment. We, we would appreciate, I think, um, being treated like adults. And if these latest round of restrictions are about Omicron, then why are we not being told that? Why can't we say, look, this is a, a preemptive measure. We're hoping to get cases down to a really low level so that if we are hit by Omicron and, and the signs at the moment are reasonably, I think, promising based on, you know, very low numbers. But uh, coming out of South Africa, it looks like it may end up being a slightly milder uh, version of, of the disease than Delta, but it may it may also be more transmissible. So that does present very clear risks to our health system. But, you know, if, if, the, if that's the case, why can't we be told that? And I think, you know, part of the problem is that there doesn't seem to be a communication strategy anymore. We seem to be being hit with a series of sort of tactical measures, but there isn't a strategy. And, and I think a lot of that goes right back to uh, the question of who it is should be speaking to the public. You know, should it be uh, the CMO and members of NEFIT or should it be our Minister for Health and, and, and the Taoiseach? Um, you know, and, and I think if you look at it purely from a communications point of view, the, the the strategy over the last while has been a bit of a failure because you have uh, you have everybody's talking policy and nobody's really talking about strategy. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, Hugh, that I spent a little bit of time working in communications and one of the golden rules in corporate communications was that, you know, you have some people who speak strategy and then other people who speak tactics and and and, pol and policy. And that's how it works. And I think it should probably work the same way government so that Tony Holohan and members of NEFIT should be in the background advising the Minister for Health and the government and the cabinet on strategy. And then it's up to the Minister for Health and the government and the cabinet to decide on the tactics or, or the kind of policies that will be used to deliver that strategy. And I just I don't think that there's any sense that that's that's happening. And almost two years into this crisis or certainly 20, 20 something months now into this crisis, I think that's not good enough.
Jen, what Jenny describes there, it seems to me, is at heart a political failure. It's a failure by the government in this instance to take control of the messaging, which it should have done, and also probably to take control of the strategy as well. Because if you have, it seems to me that if you have scientists who are experts in their field, which is absolutely fine, making decisions really based on their opinion about the way in which society is going to react to certain measures or how individuals might react to the uh, hurling helmet nature of, of masks or the snake oil measure of antigens, that really bespeaks a failure at governmental level. And you might even say that looking at that, that's the reason why Ireland has been lockdown central more so than most other European countries, because that's been the default go-to measure proposed by health systems. And we haven't put in place politically other things like filters, widespread antigen testing and other measures, all of which could have made a greater contribution. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think firstly, what I would say is um, Jenny was making the point about, you know, why hasn't the government explained to people properly why it is exactly that we're tightening restrictions at this time? And you mentioned earlier on Leo Varadkar's peculiar comment. And it seems to, you know, is it Omicron was question or is it something else? And why can't they be straight with us, etc.? It seems to me, and this is just from digging around, this isn't because there's been any, you know, clear message that everyone else has missed or something. It seems to me that they're what they're worried about is, potentially coming into a wave of Omicron, whether that means it's more transmissible, even if it is less mild, what does that mean for the health service, but coming into it from a very high base. So they're worried that if you're coming at, you know, 5,000 cases a day or 4,500 cases a day stabilisation, that if you go into another wave from that, it's potentially very serious because in previous waves, we came into it, you know, at a very, at a much lower base than where we're at now. But of course, the big difference is vaccination and that's something that the government is always, you know, every time uh, Michal Martin talks about, you know, this Christmas, he consistently says every single time now that we're in a different place to last year because of vaccination. So, yeah, I would agree there that definitely there is work, much work to be done to explain to people this is the reason why uh, and this is the plan. If it does get to a certain degree, if we do come at it from this really high base, then here's the plan or here's our thinking for next year. I think the reason why they don't do that is because they genuinely don't know what's going to happen, which is not me uh, excusing that, because obviously you can say that about anything in politics, that you don't know what's going to happen in the event of X, Y or Z, but you still make a plan for it. Um, so definitely, I think I, I think there's an issue there. Um, and we've seen, you know, in terms of the interplay between NEFIT and government, and we mentioned antigen tests there and the wearing face masks and trusting people, that obviously has been missing. And, you know, we had the comment about snake oil and and like Jenny said about the, the, the wearing of the mask is like a, 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 a hurling helmet. Um, and what we've seen basically from the very, very start of the pandemic, if we ask ourselves, why is it that we've ended up in this position where we're so reliant on what the scientists say and the government are completely reliant on them giving them the go ahead? It's because I think from day one of the pandemic, the government said they were not going to do Anything that wasn't greenlit by public health uh, experts, they said they would from day one, they said we will be led by whatever the public health experts say. So from day one, they gave that power to NAFA. You know, people often ask, like, how is it that NAFA became so very powerful? There's never been a beast like them in politics, specifically that has such a stranglehold on, on government actions. It's because government gave them that power in the beginning and said, these are the experts. What they say goes effectively, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what they said. And that set the tone for the entire pandemic. And I think that's why we are where we are now, because now they're finding, and we've, we, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, that the, the government or ministers are complaining that 
members of NAFET and these public health experts are going out in the airwaves and talking about things before they've had a chance to consider them. Leaks are coming out of NAFET meetings when ministers are standing in the dull trying to talk about other topics and then they're being asked, you know, according to the Irish Times, RTE, the Indo, whoever, masks are going to be uh, required for, for school children. What do you know about this? And they know nothing about it because they haven't even got the letter yet. And now this is their attempt, very, very belated attempt, to try and take back some of that control of the message, take back some of the power, essentially, um, and remind people where the decisions are made. Unfortunately for them, the way it looks from the outside is that they're trying to kind of tamp down that message and say, you can't talk to the media or say, give us your opinion on X, Y, Z without going through government information services. And then we saw at the weekend what happened where members of the NEFIT weren't available, to, I think, including to ourselves. Um, so they've they've landed themselves in this situation, is what I'm saying. They gave them the power in the beginning, and now they're trying very, very belatedly, like Jenny said, nearly two years into the pandemic, to wrestle that back. And we have paid the price, essentially, for that because we're so late to the game with antigen testing and we don't trust people the way we should. Uh, and there's a whole load of other examples you can give about areas in which we could have been miles ahead. And yeah, maybe it is why we've been under a much more restrictive regime than our European counterparts. Although I, I suppose I should say that, you know, there are several other European countries, particularly in Northern Europe at the moment, who are, have introduced restrictions that are comparable to the ones that have been brought in in Ireland over the last while. And some of those do have more developed approaches to questions like like, like antigen testing. But Pat, let's come to this key point. Are we never going to hear from Neffet again now? Is that the reality? Oh, I think you'll hear from Neffet again. All right. <laughs> um, Jennifer's outlined there, I suppose, you know, the background to this current attempt by the government to what they say, you know, control the message or to get across their key messages. And uh, there's no doubt that it does, some of it stems from frustration, particularly not so much last week, although there were many eyebrows raised uh, within government. And uh, unfortunately, I have to report some expletives when uh, some ministers saw the, uh, that, that it was Tony Houlihan who was uh, addressing the, the parents and children of the nation in the letter that, uh, that, that he sent out uh, in, in the middle of the week about the, uh, about the restrictions. Sorry, Pat, can I just ask you about that? Is that completely within his remit? You know, did he just send out that letter as chief medical officer? Was that not cleared by cabinet plus the departments of education and health? I don't know what passed between, if anything, passed between Dr. Holohan and the uh, and the Department of Education before that uh, letter was issued. It would be extraordinary if it was if it was done without the knowledge of the Department of Education. Uh, I would have thought, but my point is that many other ministers and people around government are wondering, you know, with or without the permission of the Department of Education, why the hell is Dr. Holan addressing himself to the parents and children of the nation? But actually, a lot of the government resentment, I think, went back to the previous week when, as I outlined earlier, the NEF had made the surprise decision. It was a surprise to people in government and in opposition because there had been indications and explicit uh, uh, indications from Dr. Hulan, as I said earlier, in a briefing to opposition leaders that there wouldn't be any restrictions. And all of a sudden, this mask mandate for the 9 to 13-year-olds was landed on uh, on everyone, but on people in government who then had three days trying to figure out what they were going to do about it before the cabinet actually met 
and um, uh, and made a decision on it. So, um, so what we've seen then since is this attempt to agree the key messages, and there is this somewhat convoluted explanation from within government that what will happen is if an interview request goes into a member of NEFID, uh, they uh, they will be asked to route that through government information service and or the Department of Health, which will then supply some sort of a briefing of these key messages to the relevant member of NEFID for them to presumably go out and convey in whatever interview uh, they uh, they seek to do. Now, I, for one, would not like to be the official that is uh, telling Dr. Holohan what he can or cannot say in or what his key messages should be. My suspicion is that Dr. Holohan would have a very clear idea himself of what his key messages should be. And actually, at the government or the, the weekly cab, post-cabinet press briefing yesterday, I, um, I asked the government press secretary who will decide on what these key messages for? And the answer appeared to be, well, there would be a group of, you know, all the stakeholders would come to agreement on what the key messages would be. My suspicion is this will not make much of a difference at all uh, in the medium term as to how messages are conveyed by NEFID or by anybody else. But what they are is a signal as to the frustration in government not just at the role of NEFID in recent weeks, though that is, some, uh, that is undoubtedly a part of it, but also at the situation in which they find themselves. That is to say, they are now, you know, battening down the hatches once again for Christmas. They know how politically unpopular that would be and how it will be interpreted by many people as a political failure. And they're simply grumpy about it. Quite understandable uh, that they're grumpy, Jenny. And it sounds to me that, if I understand what Pat says, this is going to continue. And the kind of mixed messaging which you were talking about there earlier, the kind of absurd situation you had last week when you had government and NEFIT giving entirely contradictory advice on what parents should do about social interactions or going to the panto or whatever it was. My favourite moment of the whole pandemic so far has been when we were told that only adults could go to the panto. Uh, it was a, it was a, it was a marvellous moment in, 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 in modern Irish history, unfortunately. It didn't, la- it didn't last for too long. I, for one, would like to go to a proper adult <laughs> panto. I think that could be good fun. Some pantos are very yeah, good, Pat. I think it's true. And, and that letter that, uh, that Pat referred to, I think was quite extraordinary. I think, um, you know, the, the, the chief medical officer writing directly to parents and, and going much further than the government was going in their advice to parents. So saying there was to be no playdates, no sleepovers and no communions at the same time that the health minister, Stephen Donnelly, was saying, oh, no, that's OK, but you can only do one of them in a week. You can either go to, to a playdate or a panto. Um, and I think, you know, Jen's point about how the government has kind of locked itself into this almost almost toxic relationship at this point with with Neffet where nobody is is quite clear who's going to say what about anything um, until it's already been said is a really interesting one and I think it's unique to Ireland. I think when we look back on this we will we will try and you know wonder how we ended up in this situation because if you look at at the the UK the chief medical officer there Chris Whitty is he's not a media you know, figure particularly. He's he's not a household name. He does attend briefings alongside Boris Johnson and, and Sir Patrick Valance, but he doesn't lead them. Um, and I remember writing about it recently because I got interested. I thought, is there an equivalent of a Dr. Tony Holland anywhere else in, in Europe or in, in the United Kingdom? And I looked up Chris Whitty and he hadn't appeared. This is about a month ago. He hadn't appeared in any media headlines for a period of about five or six weeks before that. Uh, I looked him up again this morning to see there there has been a briefing at which he's been quoted saying that he's concerned about the Omicron 
Omicron variant, but it just doesn't garner the same kind of attention that every single utterance from Tony Holen or, or from Philip Nolan does. And I wonder, you know, how much that's working in in favour of Neffet at the moment, because there have been a few communications clangers from from them. I think um, we were talking about HEPA filters there a second ago. And, you know, Chief Epidemiological Advisor Philip Nolan ha- was quoted as saying they're not useful in the far corner of a room with 20 to 30 people where you don't know the source of infection. Um, they might be useful like in a hospital where you could literally put one beside somebody who is infectious and suck all the infectious air out of the room. Um, and Professor John Wenger, who is a member of the communications, ex- the government's expert panel on, on ventilation and, and had recommended the use of them in, in some poorly ventilated classrooms. Um, and he's a he's a chemistry professor as well, said that this from Philip Nolan defies the laws of physics. So, you know, I, I think that people are intelligent and they're looking at this and, and they're drawing their own conclusions and they're saying, why would Neffet be advising putting masks on a nine-year-old child before air filters in classrooms, which is not a, a horrifically expensive measure besides some of the other things that we've been asked to do. You know, and I think, again, I just think there's a lack of nuances, a lack of subtlety in, in some of the decision making. I personally think uh, putting masks on a nine or a 10 year old is, is a really bad idea. I think I'm, I, but I don't really have a problem with a mask on an 11 or 12 year old. I have two teenagers here who go to school with a mask every day and they're absolutely fine. It has no impact on them whatsoever. But I have a child of seven who's just under the mask wearing age because she's in second class. Um, And I think she would find it really hard to make herself heard in the classroom if she had to to wear a mask. So, you know, I think there's there's just a lack of nuance. There's a lack of subtlety. There's an instinct to go for what they see as sort of the cheap, easy targets that we can implement overnight. Um, And there's not enough effort made to bring the people affected on board. And in this case, that includes obviously children and their parents. Just as an educational feature at this point, I could arrange an interview with a nine-year-old who's recently been forced to wear a mask, if you think that would enliven things. <laughs> what does the nine-year-old make of it? He thinks it's a pain in the arse, but uh, prefers being in school with a mask than being out of school without one. But anyway. That's... You know, I think that's actually the thing that, that has sort of brought parents on board. It's, and it's part of, you know, when I was talking about parents being gaslit about schools, on the one hand, we're being told, you know, we're doing everything in our power to, to keep schools open. But on the other hand, you have Norma Foley. I think I counted her twice unprompted, bringing up the question of whether schools could reopen in January. You've Killian de Gascoon weighing in on the question that, you know, he hopes that schools can reopen in January. Um, and I think that's that's just horrific messaging because nowhere in Europe, I think p- perhaps in Belgium, there is a conversation about schools maybe closing early for the Christmas holidays, but it shouldn't be on the agenda anywhere. We're not in a position to to talk about. We're nowhere near a situation where we should realistically be having conversations about talking about schools closing. Yet we seem to be talking about it all the time. However, I, I do know for a fact that some schools are putting contingency plans in place because they need to update and look at their remote um their their remote teaching systems and they're doing that as a contingency for January, which might be wise while accepting everything that um that you you say as well, Jenny. Jen, I want to go to one final point because uh people always say there's no silver bullet and there is no silver bullet, but what there is is there's one very important measure which is currently underway, which is the the rollout of booster or or third shot um, vaccines. And we know for a fact that uh, partly because of waning immunity among among the vaccinated population, and partly to give added protection to the most uh, to the most vulnerable members of society, that that can have a huge impact in the amount of pressure uh, that any current wave is going to have on on our health system and our our bed numbers. 
There still seems to be a bit of uncertainty about how well that's going. I mean, you're writing a little bit about this in this morning's Irish Times Politics Digest, about the attendance rate seems quite low, a little bit unclear about why that is. Yeah, um, and like you said, this is a big plank of the government's plan, uh, whatever that may be, uh, in terms of dealing with the next phase of the pandemic. Because, you know, when we first got our, our vaccines, our first dose, uh, if you got Janssen, just the first, if you were the other vaccinations or two doses, um, it kind of was, in some senses, like a, a, a real world experiment, not in terms of obviously the safety of the vaccine, which has been which has been proven, but in terms of um, how long it lasts and in terms of uh, when it wanes. And now I think we're seeing that it, perhaps the immunity that we that we have from the vaccinations is waning a little bit quicker than the government would have liked, which is why the booster campaign is so important. Um, and I think there was an expectation in government that once they got rolled out, the got the centres set up and, you know, equipped the GPs and the pharmacists with um, all of the stock, that people would kind of be rushing in to get it. But I definitely, there's obviously a lot of concern in government at the moment um, about that take up um, and particularly about no shows amongst the groups which have been called. And we know that we're kind of, uh, that we've got people in their 50s and 60s uh, getting the jabs this week, so on Monday, um, the Taoiseach Michael Martin, he had a meeting with his officials and about COVID-19 and he told them we need to do everything we can to increase the number of people who are coming to get their booster job, which was the first kind of indication we had about the significance of the worry that he has. Uh, and then yesterday we learned, we got a, a couple of new figures um, and we learned that from the week of November 22nd, there were 208,000 appointments offered for boosters now specifically, but only 80,000 people turned up for them, which is kind of an extraordinary figure. And then last week, there were 180,000 appointments issued, but only 93,000 people uh, turned up. And um, Pat um, and Simon Carswell and Sarah Burns in their piece this morning uh, um, on the front page are talking about some, maybe some of the reasons in it. And the HSE are saying that perhaps it's the availability of the, the jobs from GPs and pharmacies um, which are a reason for not showing up at the, at the actual appointments in vaccination centres. And um, perhaps it's the weather, but the fact of the matter is they don't fully know why people aren't turning up. And it, those those figures, I think, show the gulf between the appointments being offered uh, and the people who are actually turning up. So there's a lot of concern about this. And I think what we'll see is a, ca- a concerted campaign to to get people to to come and get their, their third job and perhaps to try and understand why exactly it is that people don't want to get it at this, at this phase? You know, are, are they concerned about, you know, getting a third job now and then having to get a fourth job in the spring? We just don't know yet. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, and that's before we even get on to the topic of NIAC, because there always has been frustration in government. There continues to be frustration in government at the speed and pace at which NIAC um, not only deliver their recommendations, but I think the transparency around when they're meeting and, you know, how ex- when exactly they can expect to hear. There was an expectation that the government would hear on Monday night about the next phase of the booster campaign. So that would probably look at whether children would be prioritised ahead of the next age groups, um, you know, people in their 40s and 30s uh, or or not. Um, and I was talking to someone in government on Monday night and they said, we thought we'd hear, but now we won't. Talked to someone in government Tuesday morning and they said, we thought we'd hear it this morning and now we haven't. And then we had Leo Varadkar out on the radio saying, we'll have a very significant decision soon, but there's no sign of it. Um, so I think there's, there is, there's a question there as well. Pat, just a last thought on that, because this is a logistical challenge which the government can actually do something about and in which its performance can be judged in retrospect. It might be quite understandable if if the thing was a bit lumpy as you were getting up it up and running in the first few weeks, but we are 
behind some some other countries, uh, notably the UK, in the rollout of this, quite significantly behind it. And if there are problems with people not showing up because they've been jabbed elsewhere and the numbers not being correct, I mean, if they can't iron those out, that's not going to look good, is it? No, um, it's, I mean, the continued silence from NIAC about the, uh, is, is, is one thing, that's about the, you know, the jabs for children. And I mean, at all points of the vaccination program, which let us not success has, or let us not forget, has achieved a success that is almost unparalleled um, by comparison with uh, similar uh, countries uh, around the world. So we can do a booster or we can do a vaccination campaign. We know that. But at each point, um, NIAC's tardiness in supplying the recommendations has been, to my mind, completely inexplicable. And I know has left some people in government absolutely tearing their, uh, their, their hair out. On the subject of the booster program, I think what you'll see is government dialing up a campaign this week saying, if you want to go and see your granny for Christmas, for God's sake, get a, get a booster jab. Or, um, you know, if you want to go to, if you want to go home for Christmas dinner, for God's sake, get your, uh, get your booster get your booster jab it 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 does seem that there is an enormous level of no show which i mean i find beyond strange to be honest but um you know then again you know there's lots of people who um have exhibited some degree of vaccine hesitancy uh, i i suppose uh, since the beginning of the program but uh but nothing nothing like these rates pat you know vaccine yeah. hesitancy is down well well yeah, well below 10 yeah. of the population yeah. and we're, oh, so yeah, we're talking is, about only one out of every two bit? people showing what's up. the missing bit the answer is um uh, I, I just don't know but unless you know public health authorities and people themselves find some way of getting over that then you know it's going to be the by the booster program will be unnecessarily slow and therefore the epidemiological situation threatens to be worse Last thought from you, Jenny. Well, I'm just wondering, do we have a sense of how much this is actually sort of a personal failure of individuals, which is how it's it's being presented to us versus an administrative failure? Because, you know, anecdotally, it does seem that people are getting it from pharmacies, people are getting it from their GPs, and perhaps they've been put off by reports of of four-hour queues at at vaccination centres and are getting it locally. It does seem really, really hard to understand why a population, which I think the rate, the most recent figures show 93% are, are of the eligible population are, are vaccinated, uh, wouldn't follow up and, and get their, their booster dose. So I think, you know, rather than taking those 93,000 out of, um, uh, only 93,000 turned up out of 180,000, we really need more of a deep dive into, well, how much of that can be accounted for by just administrative glitches. And if it is the case that people are not turning up, then we need bodies like the SRI looking into it uh, and giving us some insight into why that is, because it, it is utterly counterintuitive. I, I completely agree with that. We will leave it there for today. So thanks to Jennifer Bray and Jennifer O'Connell and to uh, Pat Lee. Also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. We have a plethora of Jennifers involved in today's podcast and our engineer. You can't have too many Jennifers. Well, I we, might, say. we might test that <laughs> next week, Pat, and get four Jennifers on. But for the moment, thanks also to our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon with more Jennifers, hopefully. But do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts Jennifer and questions Lopez. at politicspodcast <laughs> at irishtimes.com. See 